Well, I started really recording music seriously years ago, but had taken a long hiatus. I had not written a song. I got a day job, got good at my day job, figured out what it felt like to pay bills on time and thought music was behind me. Miguel Mora used to be a rapper. He was part of a group that had some success, opening for big names like Talib Kweli, Nas and Snoop Dogg. But then the music dried up. So Miguel decided to have a change of careers. So I went to law school. Uh, I was not a great law student. Practiced law for like a year, hated it, and then got lucky and got a job at a digital media agency. And for a while, he had a regular job. Then lost my job due to COVID. Sitting at home in Florida with little to do, he discovered CryptoPunks, basically an online collection of 10,000 pixelated digital images depicting the heads of various characters. They're regarded as one of the first collections of non-fungible tokens, or NFTs. And in crypto land, that makes them valuable. Kind of like rare and significant works of art. Kind of. And one of the pixelated heads, Miguel thought, looked like him. So he has medium skin tone, he wears a baseball cap, and he's male. So it's like, okay, that could be me, potentially, from a distance. But he also has spots on his face. Now, Miguel had made some money trading various crypto tokens since about 2017, and he figured he'd like to use some of that crypto to buy this pixelated head. It was one of the scariest things I've ever done. This unemployed former rapper and lawyer decided to spend $40,000 on CryptoPunk 5528. I literally Googled what is the value of the Mona Lisa because I felt like I'm buying a one ten thousandth of the new Mona Lisa for the digital age. And as long as I'm paying less than one ten thousandth of the value of the Mona Lisa, I thought I was getting a deal. Now, you might think that taking the value of the most famous painting in history and just dividing it by 10,000 might be a little bit of an optimistic way of valuing an NFT. Because NFTs are, whatever you might have been told, essentially just a digital receipt. But for Miguel, it sparked an idea, a way of reviving his music career. What really struck me was you would get followers on Twitter if you change your profile picture to a crypto punk. People that were into NFTs or trying to learn about them or crypto in general, they would start to listen to you. I remember what it was like as a musician trying to get people's attention or try to get their ear. And that's not always an easy thing to do. Excited, Miguel got onto a video call with his best friend, a music producer he used to work with years earlier. We hadn't made music together in years because I hadn't written a song in seven or eight years. And I just, I sat him down. We, We got on a Google Hangout and I shared my screen and then I showed him my CryptoPunk. And I, and I told him, you know, you might laugh or say I'm crazy, but I spent $40,000 on this and I have an idea. I'm going to turn him into a rapper and I'm going to call him Spotty Wi-Fi. I thought that was going to be the tough part of the conversation and I was going to have to twist his arm. He immediately got it and was super into it. So today, Miguel is, well, he's actually no longer just Miguel or not when he's in the metaverse anyway. You know, the metaverse, that kind of virtual reality, immersive version of the internet that we're all apparently going to be living in very soon. My name is Spotty Wi-Fi. Uh, I am the world's best and only CryptoPunk rapper. And all thanks to CryptoPunk 5528. 
The concerts were all metaverse performances. It opened up a new world to me, which is the metaverse, where I could create a, a lore. I could create a universe, a spotty verse. This is Tectonic from the Financial Times, a podcast about how technology is changing the world for the better and for the worse. I'm Jemima Kelly, and in this series, I'm asking, why do people still believe in crypto and its underlying technology, the blockchain? I'm taking a journey through what I like to call Cryptoland to find out whether this year's huge crypto crash has brought people back down to earth. For artists like Spotty Wi-Fi, there's an easy answer. The blockchain gave us NFTs, and NFTs have created a new way for people like him to make some money. Now, anyone who's listened to the first couple of episodes in this series might know by now that I am no fan of anything crypto-related. But are NFTs finally an example of crypto doing something good? Or are they just the latest get-rich-quick scheme for the cryptosphere? This is episode three, NFT Mania. To understand how the blockchain found its way into the art world, you might start here, at this brightly lit studio in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, this is this uh, kind of uh, robotic drawing machine that I uh, put together a couple of years ago, and it's been, um, you know, an increasingly big part of the work that I've been doing. This is where Kevin McCoy works. He's an artist. Today, he's working with a strange contraption that he's built himself. A bundle of cords dangle from the ceiling, attached to a black pen that's suspended over a large square of paper. It can work with pens, it can work with paint and brushes, it can work with charcoal. I've written software that can create lots of different types of images that have different kind of looks to it. Kevin writes the code for this machine, and the pen follows that code with tiny mechanical strokes to create these spindly geometric images. These images are ultimately started from photographs of tree branches that I've done these software processes to to kind of weave them together into these kind of thatched patterns. And this is kind of test. Kevin's on, use know, of computer programming uh, in art goes back to the late 90s and early noughties. He was part of a wave of so-called net art in New York, which worked with early iterations of the internet. So it was a kind of natural progression for him to start looking at Bitcoin and the blockchain. I had been really kind of obsessed with Bitcoin and, and that technology in mean, 2012 and 2013. Once I saw that what Bitcoin was, was a form of digital property. Once I saw that, to me, it was like, oh, there's got to be a way that this could work for an, an artwork, a digital artwork. Conceptually and artistically, that's the thinking that brought me to Inventing an NFT. Yeah, you heard that right. Kevin invented NFTs, he says. Other people also make this claim, but many do agree that Kevin was first. Back then, they weren't known as NFTs. But in 2014, Kevin came up with an idea. A way of recording digital art on the blockchain. The idea came about during a hackathon-style event where Kevin collaborated with a software developer named Anil Dash. An artist is paired with a technologist and you have 24 hours to work together and then to make a presentation. Kevin and Anil worked on their idea late into the night. We were working from the offices of an ad agency in Lower Manhattan. 
And it was actually, it was pretty hilarious because it was, I think it was a Friday night and the event then was Saturday the next day, I think. And this is 2014. So it's like really the height of startup and digital culture. And the office is now a cool place and all the kind of, you know, crazy architecture and free this and free that, like whatever. It was just like running wild. And so there was just a full bar, beer taps, like food, like whatever. And there was just this raging after work party going on while we were in this little glass office room, just like trying to work on this stuff. And all these people were like partying around us. Kevin and Anil came up with something they called monetized graphics, a way of establishing ownership of digital art. Basically, the artworks would be stored as strings of code, which you could buy and sell in the same way you might Bitcoin. It's just this kind of metadata statement that points to the file, points to how to verify the file, points to me as the creator of it, uh, and, and, and makes a kind of ownership statement about it. And then that record itself is transferable. You know, the artwork never changes, never has to jump anywhere or go anywhere. They presented their idea to the others at the hackathon, but... It was late and people were getting a bit tired. We went way over time. The whole company was at the end of this conference and everyone was like ready to get to the bar. So everyone was, you know, it was like, oh my God. So it was like, boom, 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 boom. Still, the more people listened, the more the idea seemed to strike a chord. And um, there was a number of questions about how is this ownership when the artwork's right there? You know, what does that mean? What does this ownership mean? You know, but then right at the end, right before the, the, the break, this guy stood up and goes... You know, and he looked to the audience, not to, not to us. He looked out to the audience. He goes, you know, I've been, uh, you know, working with this technology for a long time. And what we saw here is something really special, really incredible. And I just wanted everybody to know that. <laughs> it was one person that, you know, that got it. Kevin left the conference feeling pretty psyched. He thought he'd hit on something big. He even went on to build an early NFT marketplace. But no buyers, zero, nothing. Nobody bought anything. You know, it was just too early. The idea just was not there. That experience of being too early was really uh, crazy, really remarkable, painful. It would take a few years for the idea to really take hold. But by 2021, anything crypto related was booming. And in particular, NFTs. They were the hottest thing in crypto land, and some of them were changing hands for millions of dollars. And then people were, you know, then like reaching out to me and like saying, is, is this what you were doing? It's like, yeah, that's, that's it. <laughs> this is it. This is what I was talking about five years ago. Eventually, Kevin McCoy was able to sell that very first NFT, the one he created with Anil at the hackathon years earlier. The NFT was called Quantum, it was a simple animation of a geometric shape on a black background. A curator that was working with Sotheby's reached out to me and knew that I, you know, kind of about the history of this work. And we ended up um, taking that very first work, Quantum, to, uh, to auction uh, last year at Sotheby's um, with a sale last spring. And that was, you know, it was successful. It was good. Quantum sold for $1.4 million. So NFT sales were $40 billion last year, which from a relatively niche area to that is massive. And in comparison, the global art market sales were over $50 billion by some estimates. So NFTs, which most people hadn't heard of, almost making the same amount as the global art market. Christina Criddle is a technology reporter at the FT. 
Among other things, she covers NFTs. And in 2021, she saw how they turned the art market upside down. Some digital artists were suddenly finding a market for their work. The most notable one was Beeple, which was an artist who created this collage as an NFT, and that sold for $69 million. So that was a really high amount. You saw lots of uh, established artists getting involved, like Damien Hirst. Um, Sotheby's and Christie's were both holding NFT auctions. And you see a lot of fine artists coming into the space and art dealers really taking notice and considering investing in NFTs. And there were other financial benefits for some artists as well. A lot of artists who love NFTs are saying this is a new form of revenue for them, a new form of control. With the blockchain and with NFTs, you can code it in to the technology that whenever that NFT, that token is sold again, then a proportion of that sale will go back to the artist and they will always take a cut of that, which means that they're cutting out the middleman like agents in the traditional art market sphere. And I've spoken to artists who were struggling as fine artists beforehand, but have since they've started getting into NFTs, have managed to make it really successful through these secondary sales. You can actually make an NFT out of pretty much anything. And people have. Tweets, newspaper articles, music... In terms of the 2021 bubble, the biggest markets were in one-off digital artworks and PFPs, or profile picture collections. Those are typically cartoonish pictures like the CryptoPunk that Spotty Wi-Fi uses. And people trade them a bit like baseball cards. They're probably the ones that most people have seen, the ones of cartoon apes, you know, pixelated punks or funny cats. And those are bought and sold and are very, very speculative. And those ones are mainly made so that you can put them on your Twitter profile and show off. All of this developed into a veritable mania. People were buying and selling NFTs at crazy prices on huge NFT marketplaces. Everything was getting a little bit out of control. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., I can see that NFTs have benefited some struggling artists, and I'm happy for them, truly. And this is, after all, exactly the story that the promoters of the techno-utopian vision of Web3 like to push. The online content creator connecting with their audience more directly and taking a bigger cut than they might have in the middlemen-ridden world of Web2. But it is worth remembering that an NFT is not actually itself a piece of digital art. It's a string of code that's meant to represent ownership. Anyone can mint an NFT of absolutely anything at any time, without any oversight. All of which might leave you wondering, what are people actually buying here? And why are they buying it? So... Given how fuzzy it all is and how much money there is to be made, 
It's hardly surprising that like every other crypto invention, the NFT market has become a breeding ground for scammers. What proportion of the NFT world at the moment do you think is a scam? A easy 90%. I could say 95, but I'll go with 90. If I told you that a market was 90 to 95% fraud, you'd run away from it. But in this in this case, people tend to come even more. I don't know why, to be honest. It's, it's, it's very crazy. That's our producer, Edwin Lane, speaking to Aless Ribeiro. Aless's day job is in property in London. But a few years ago, Aless got into the crypto markets. And then late last year, he saw the fortune some people were making buying and selling NFTs, like CryptoPunks, and he started speculating on NFTs instead. He and his friends pulled their money together. But things didn't go quite as planned. I was just a normal NFT investor trying to make it from all the hype. And essentially, I created a group on WhatsApp, an investment group. Everyone added to put $250 into a wallet, the group wallet. I called the wallet Los Locos. Like crazy. And with that $1,500, I went to buy four NFTs and they all turned out to be rugs. Rug pulls, or rugs, are an amazingly common scam in crypto land. They're basically an exit scam. Promoters hype up the price of a token or NFT so that people buy in and then disappear with all the money. With NFTs, the idea is to hype a new collection telling everyone that it will be the next CryptoPunks or Bored 8 Yacht Club, and then get people to essentially pre-order their NFTs. Once they've collected all the money, the scammers pull away the rug. Sometimes the buyers do get an NFT, but they're so laughably bad, even by the standards of NFT art, that it's obvious that they've been scammed. So one of them was, uh, it's called Ancient Cats. Uh, you know, when you buy an NFT, you don't know what you're buying yet until they release the image. And uh, when the image got released, it was just a joke. It's supposed to look like ancient cats, like Egyptian gods, but uh, they had beards, which you can see is pretty much copy and paste on top of the image. So it's it looks like a kid done it. Aless got rug pulled by scammers so many times that he decided to look into who was behind them. He began by tracking the cryptocurrency wallets of the scammers. And then I pretty much just got deep into it, especially like researching where the money movement goes, because, you know, the blockchain is transparent, right? You can you know exactly where the money is going, where the money is coming from. So I just, I just uh, jumped into that, trying to track where all the money of these rugs went to, to try to find out who the, who the, who the owners are, because most of them are anonymous. Using the somewhat low-tech method of a pen and sheets of printed paper, Aless would stay up into the early hours in his kitchen, copying out the 30-digit addresses of suspects' wallets by hand. I would just uh, grab a piece of paper in my book, sometimes just from my printer, and I would just like make arrows to see, okay, two million came from the ancient cats collection, where did it go? It was a while before he realised there was software that could do a lot of this for him. He never worked out the identity of the scammers, but he did find that again and again it was the same crypto wallets, the same people, pulling off one rug pull scam after another. And they were making millions of dollars. Aless was understandably pretty cross about it. 
So much so that he decided to launch an Instagram account under the name Rugpull Hunter. It acts a bit like a wall of shame, warning people off certain NFT projects. The biggest one was called Bored Bunnies, a ripoff of the incredibly successful Bored Apes collection, showing a bunch of bunnies looking, you guessed it, bored. Bored Bunny made 25 million, uh, so they stole 25 million. That's the biggest collection that we have uncovered, pretty much. Bored Bunny is, uh, I would say, is, uh, is, is on a different league in terms of other collections because they're popularized by artists and uh, famous people buying the, the collection. And this is the bit that really gets me. Aless was sounding clear warnings on Instagram, but the NFT crowd didn't care. They wouldn't listen. I told everyone a month before they even released. So people didn't believe me because uh, you're lying, uh, that's not true. When I clearly posted images of where the money went and everything else, but people didn't believe until it was too late. Rug pulls are actually just one way that con artists, forgers and scammers exploit the NFT boom. Another thing that happens all the time is that people take someone else's work and then make an NFT out of it. And they, not the original creator, take the money. And this points to the fundamental problem with NFTs. In reality, they don't solve the problem they were meant to solve. Here's tech reporter Christina Criddle again. One of the solutions that NFTs are meant to bring is like it's a certified proof that you have the authentic item. You can see that on the blockchain. And so that is proof that you own the original. But what's happened quite a lot in the NFT market is that people have just taken that JPEG and then relisted it under a very similar name and created lots of these copycat NFTs, which people buy. There are a lot of scams. There are loads of issues around copyright as well. And OpenSea has been trying to take all of them down, but it's a massive issue and there isn't regulation there yet. OpenSea, by the way, is the biggest marketplace for NFTs. And with broader crypto markets collapsing, sales of NFTs are down more than 90% from the peak of the market frenzy. So are NFTs dead? Some NFTs are probably dead. I mean, some are completely rubbish and valueless now and that will never come back. But there are still a lot of NFTs still going around, lots of big brands entering this, luxury brands, talking about the metaverse, releasing NFTs, especially in relation to sort of digital fashion and things like that. You've got Facebook changing its name to Meta because of the metaverse and releasing NFTs on Instagram. Twitter also has NFTs. And like I say, there's big investors who are still very, very bullish on this. The metaverse today is still just an idea starting to take shape with games like Roblox or Meta's Horizon Worlds giving us glimpses of what virtual spaces where people can interact via avatars would look like. In this video, we're going to be talking about a release of an NFT collection that is coming from one of the most prominent fashion brands in the entire world, and they are known as Gucci. Nike is getting in on the NFT craze, filing several trademarks for virtual goods. Luxury brands and tech companies jumped on the idea that NFTs would become the foundations of the new metaverse economy and an integral part of Web3. The metaverse, the next frontier of the internet. This to me has been the promise of NFTs from the beginning. You're going to have your normal closet and a digital closet. 
So I think NFTs will still be around. They're not dead, but maybe not in their current form. And there's definitely a question over whether they're going to have that mass consumer appeal. Like, will your average person walking down the street have an NFT that they can show you on their phone? Probably not. Not for now, but maybe in future. If you want a sense of the enthusiasm that still exists around NFTs, even after the crash, head somewhere like NFT NYC. It's a major event on the crypto calendar, a conference in New York where NFT fans and the developers behind NFT projects leave the Discord channels and internet message boards to meet up IRL in real life. In June, our producer, Josh Gabatoyan, was there. So, Josh... What was it like? It was big, very big. There were 16,000 people at this conference, and a lot of the people there went to promote their own NFT projects, even with this collapsing market. It was at a big hotel off of Times Square in the middle of New York City, and there were five floors of exhibition halls, lots of talks going on, these really quick five-minute, ten-minute talks, people just pitching their companies and their NFT collections. And as I walked through this big foyer, there was actually a jazz band that had been hired, kind of a, a wandering jazz band. And I ended up kind of following them around and getting in the middle of this weird performance that kind of erupted where one of the attendees kind of jumped in and started playing with them. Wow, sounds wonderful. And I guess the people there were mainly true believers, I imagine. Yeah, I spoke to a lot of exhibitors and whatever was going on in the crypto market, they didn't really seem to be bothered by it. They had a real devotion to this technology, a real continued enthusiasm for NFTs. And they had all these kind of crazy uses for NFTs that were dreamed up, like an NFT roller coaster. We are creating the first NFT-funded real-world coaster. It'll be in a 3,000-square-foot warehouse. It will also be in the metaverse, as well as via VR. We're doing NFT luxury watches, especially in the metaverse. When the metaverse gets big, there's a need for fashion, there's a need for watches, so we provide them. My name's Martin Ringline, and we are introducing Fur Insure, which is the world's first pet insurance DAO. So, so real insurance for real cats and dogs, but built on Web3 technology. We're building ways to connect all these metaverses. We're building the roads, the highways, and the pipes so that your virtual identity goes beyond being a profile picture and actually allows you to embody that and become that identity and take it cross-platform. We can go into games, we can go into any 3D environment, and then our markerless motion capture allows us to extract the data from your body, apply that to the model in real time, and replace you with your asset. It's worth adding also that there was a lot of hype around these projects. I mean, some real hype with free merchandise, uh, kind of promo stuff going on. I saw Ja Rule playing at a big open bar. Uh, it was kind of an after party on the first night of the conference. That's Ja Rule like my favorite rapper when I was a teenager. Yeah, that's that, that Ja Rule. And uh, at one point he was doing his set uh, in front of a big advertisement for a uh, NFT horse racing company. So kind of metaverse horse racing, metaverse gambling. Amazing. There was also a line of exhibitors who had set up trucks outside of the hotel along this uh, street in the middle of Manhattan, and they were just offering free stuff. What, what are you guys giving out here? Uh, free carrot juice. And, and it's associated with an NFT project? Yes, it is. Yeah, for uh, Bluff World. What's, what's Flip World? Tell, tell me a little bit about it. I have no idea. 
<laughs> Do you know what Bluff World's all about? No. Who does? I'm the driver. You're the driver of this truck. And, and we don't know where the flavors of Fluff World people are. <laughs> That's all right. That's okay. Thank you for the carrot. The name of our NFT project is Tribe Kawaka. One from Naples gets a koozie. Yes, yeah. Let's fucking go. So one, when people win here at Tribe Kawaka, we just have to say, let's fucking go. Yeah. I mean, presumably, a lot of the people there had lost a lot of money on NFTs. So... How is it that they're all there, like, having a great time at this conference when the whole thing is collapsing around them? Well, look, people had lost a lot of money. There's no doubt about that. I asked a few of them about this. Has it impacted uh, your personal portfolio at all? Uh, I mean, definitely. I mean, I think we're all, like, extremely invested in this, especially if you have a career in the space. It's not only your personal, like, liquid portfolio, but your entire, like, career is in this space as well. So, like, that's definitely been impacted, but... You know, I think we feel really good going forward, to be honest. Do you mind if I ask you how, how much you're down? Uh, yeah, I'm not going to share the exact numbers. My name's Tony Ruggieri, and I'm here with Yellowheart. What do you guys do? We are an NFT ticketing platform and music platform. Uh, how much money have you lost, can I ask? A lot. <laughs> but time and time again, the take-home message that people were telling me was that it did not matter. They saw these potential applications, the future of NFTs in the metaverse, these big brand deals, the whole kind of digital cottage industry around NFTs, and they felt like in the long run, they'd come out on top. As far as a lot of people at the conference were concerned, this is inevitably what our future is going to look like, even if there are scams and market downturns and unrealized promises in how the tech actually works. Kevin McCoy, the artist who came up with an early version of the NFT, wanted to come up with a way of making digital art sellable. But given the scams and the market's collapse, does he still think NFTs have a future? It's critical that there's some way for an artist to be able to control the dispersion of their work and, and, and where it goes and how it goes. Um, and NFTs are right now the best way of allowing that to happen. Spotty Wi-Fi, historic shit, first of its kind. NFT rap star Spotty Wi-Fi sold his album as an NFT collection at the height of the mania, and it sold out in less than a minute. He made $200,000 from it. But his audience was never huge. It's basically just a segment of the crypto community. And since then, NFT sales have fallen off a cliff. So the question is, Will anyone stick around and keep buying his music? And what's the future of NFTs more broadly? Could sales start soaring again if the long-awaited crypto summer arrives? Could prices get back into the millions? And will people still care about NFTs in five years' time? My guess is no. NFTs were kind of fun for a while, and I guess some people still think they are fun. But... Once the novelty's gone and the hype fades, you're basically left with a string of code linked to a JPEG of a pixelated punk or a bored-looking ape. Next time on Tectonic, we ask the big question of this series. Why do people believe in crypto? When people engage in crypto, 
It is not the way that they engage in any other hobby. The beliefs in crypto are quite extreme and very absurd. And is there something special about the first cryptocurrency of them all, Bitcoin? You've been listening to Tectonic from the Financial Times with me, Jemima Kelly. Special thanks this week to the FT's tech reporter, Christina Criddle, and global tech correspondent, Tim Bradshaw, who conducted the interview with Spotty Wi-Fi. Tectonic's senior producer is Edwin Lane. Our producer is Josh Gabbett-Doyon, and Manuela Saragosa is executive producer. Our sound engineer is Breen Turner, with original scoring by Metaphor Music. The FT's head of audio is Cheryl Brumley.